Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hi, friends, and welcome to the happy hour. I'm your host, Jamie, and I am just thrilled that you're here with us today. Well, my kids started school. We're going to get back into a routine, and that makes this mama heart so very happy. You guys, today, my guest on the show is Caitlin Chess. Uh, she's the author of a book called Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor, and I enjoy her so much. I love when she is a co-host on the Holy Post podcast, which is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to, and I just love when I get to have thoughtful conversations with women who are engaging in God's word and engaging in their neighbor and engaging in the sake of politics for our neighbor. This conversation is super helpful for all of us and it's important. Caitlin is full of knowledge and love and grace. She talks in this episode about having answers to theological questions can truly change our faith. She recently graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary and you guys, she's pursuing a doctorate in theology from Duke Divinity School. So she is a smart cookie and I love today talking with her. I think sometimes women in particular can be afraid to dive into scripture. They can be afraid to study doctrine and theology. And this conversation is going to encourage you today. It's going to encourage you that you can, that you should, that it matters, and that it changes your life. Guys, don't forget, oftentimes in our show, we will take out some of the video and audio and we'll throw it up on YouTube. I know it's fun sometimes to actually see the person that you're listening. So you're like, oh, it's fun to see what they look like. Well, we have a video for you guys today. So go to youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy and you'll find the video with Caitlin and I uh, talking about the gospels of prosperity, patriotism, security, and supremacy. Uh, She talks about those in her book, and we dove into those in this conversation as well. Friends, next week we have an announcement here, and I am so excited about what we're going to be announcing to you guys. So make sure you're following me on Instagram. I'm at Jamie Ivy. And more importantly than that, honestly, is make sure you're a part of our newsletter. We send out two emails a week. Maybe every once in a while you might get another one, but the majority of time it's two emails a week. They each give you information about the show that we air today. And then on Friday, we tell you five things that we think you should know. And so it's a fun place to be. Go to jamieivy.com slash newsletter to subscribe so you don't miss a thing, and especially our fun announcements that we have next week. All right, friends, here's my conversation with Caitlin. Caitlin, welcome to the happy hour. Thanks so much for having me. It's so great to have you here. So introduce yourself to my listeners because you have just recently relocated and the great state of Texas is going to miss you, but tell everyone (laughs) about yourself and what you're doing. Yeah, I'm a recent seminary graduate. I just graduated with my THM from Dallas Theological Seminary. I wrote a book about politics and spiritual formation called The Liturgy of Politics, and I am a total theology nerd. And so I am in Colorado right now, but I'm about to move in two weeks to North Carolina to start my doctorate at Duke school. Goodness gracious. I love this so much because Caitlin, I get really excited when I see women excited about God's word um, because I'll tell you something. I am a lot older than you, but I grew up not really believing that I could dive deep into God's word. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anyone ever told me that by any means. I think it just felt that way that, that men, you know, they're the preachers and and they get to study God's word. And we just, you know, we make the casseroles and we show up and we do this and we're really nice and hospitable. But God wrecked my world about probably 11, 12 years ago. And I developed a love to know God's word for myself and not even just know God's word because I have always wanted to know God's word since I became a Christian at 21, but like theology and doctrine and things that felt so out of reach. And so 
Tell me, where did this love for you? You said you're a theology nerd. Where did this come from? And why is it important (laughs) in your life and in my life and in our listeners' lives? Yeah, I never imagined I would go to seminary. I never imagined I'd be getting a doctorate in theology. That was not my world. Most of the women who taught the Bible to me and who were spiritual mentors to me had never been to seminary. And they were faithful Bible teachers. And I am so appreciative to them, but that just wasn't... I didn't know any woman who'd gone to seminary. That wasn't a vision that I had for my life. And I actually, in college, I had some male friends that were going to seminary. And I slowly started thinking like, is that something I could also do? Wow. And I interned at a church that really just encouraged me and let me, you know, practice my gifts and told me, yeah, you should go to seminary. And so I didn't know anything about seminary. I showed up in Dallas, had never really been much in Texas before. And I immediately, I mean, my first class was at 745 on a Tuesday morning. And I remember getting out to my car afterwards and calling my mom and saying, this is the best decision I have ever made. Wow. It was not just studying the Bible and learning more theology. It was learning from people who loved Jesus and shared their lives with me. It was being in a really diverse community. It wasn't just me and my thoughts about the Bible or even just my professor's thoughts about the Bible. It was people from different backgrounds, theological traditions, uh, racial or socioeconomic backgrounds, all sharing their perspectives and learning together. And I still didn't think I would be a theology nerd. I thought I would probably work in a church, but I didn't know what that would look like. And then the summer after my first year, I took my first real systematic theology class. And I did not go into that thinking, I'm going to be a nerd and I'm going to write all the papers and I'm going to, but we had a project at the end of that class where we could do something creative. We could teach what we had learned. It was a class on the Trinity, or we could write a research paper. And I chose the research paper, not because I was like, that sounds fun, but because I had a question that I had had since the beginning of class. I had asked multiple professors. I had Googled stuff. I had read Bible verses and I still felt like that question hadn't fully been answered. And so I, the first book that I used to start writing this paper was a book that went through the history of the church and said, how have we answered this question throughout history? And how have people from different theological traditions answered this question? And it gave me a totally different perspective. And that's when I started thinking, okay, I love studying scripture. I love doing that in a church, but I'm going to kind of be a nerd about the doctrine theology stuff forever because it helped me understand things that I hadn't had answers to before. And it helped me ask questions that I hadn't asked before and having the freedom. I feel like the number one thing seminary did for me, that's why I encourage women to go to seminary. But even if they don't, I say, what I learned that I want to share with you is that there are incredible resources out there to help us understand scripture. We can do it alone in a room with a Bible, but we will also make a lot of mistakes if we study scripture alone in a room with a Bible. And so how can we draw on the history of the church and people from different perspectives to inform not just the things that we know. A lot of people, when I said I was going to seminary said, you know, don't go to the cemetery when you go to seminary. (laughs) Right. But that was not my experience. I found so much greater love for Christ and his church when I found different witnesses to the truth of scripture throughout history. When I learned new questions to ask and answers to think about. I love that. And when I when we talk about your book in just a second, I want to talk about something like that, that you just referenced about diving in and seeing how the church has handled things in the past and how it affects how we move forward. But what was your question that you needed answered so much that you decided to do a research project? I'm so glad you asked. No one has ever asked me that. <laughs> wow. How a, could it, you not ask? I'm like <laughs> dying to know. And then I need to know the answer. 
Yeah. So it was a question about what's happening with the Trinity on the cross. I had heard in a lot of sermons growing up, you know, like in the hymn, the father turned his face away, that the father is pouring his wrath out on the son. And what I learned was that our kind of very modern way of thinking about this, that there was some kind of break in relationship between the father and the son on the cross is a pretty modern way of thinking about that. And that most theologians throughout history have said, when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a Psalm that ends in trust in God. And so there isn't a relational break in the Trinity. And I could get into all of the metaphysical reasons why that's important, but it was a real, again, a metaphysical theological answer, but also a comforting personal answer to know Jesus is having the human experience of feeling abandoned by God. And yet the truth of what's happening is that he was not abandoned by God, just as we might feel abandoned by God, but are not. And that to me is a better Mm. truth than thinking that the Trinity was somehow split up on the cross. And that if God could abandon Jesus in that moment, what would he be able to do for us? Yeah. Yeah. It's an evangelistic question. A lot of people will hear what Christians say about the cross and they'll say that's divine child abuse, right? A father abusing his son. And the truth of the gospel is better than that, that the father and the son and the spirit as the Trinity that has always existed set out this plan from eternity and that Jesus is, you know, a part of that in the same kind of way the father is. And so those are the kinds of things that I think people thought in seminary, oh, those are just theological questions that don't matter. I was working in a local church the whole time I was in seminary and the women I was ministering to had questions about things like that. Mm. And a lot of the times in my classes, people acted like no one really cares about that stuff, but they do. It changes their faith. It does. And so, you know, even hearing that there's women, which I would encourage women if they want to go to seminary, like you can, there's a place for you to do this. If people have been listening to the show for a while, they've probably heard me mention, I've had this dream of going to seminary for years and I just need to, I need to take that first step, Caitlin. That's all I need to do. That's all I need to do. (laughs) But for those of them who are thinking, okay, this is great. And I agree with you guys. I just don't think I can go to seminary. What is your encouragement for them? Because again, it's not seminary or nothing. Like we can both agree on that. That is the truth. And a lot of people live in that middle place, but there is still this sometimes underlying feeling of, I just don't need to know as much as maybe the men in my church. Mm. And so how can you encourage women if seminary is not an option of why it is important to know those answers? Like even you wrestling with that answer that changed your faith, you know, it made you love God more. So why is that important for women to dive into that? Yeah. I think a lot of times it's not just uncertainty that we can do it. There's a level of fear that's involved Mm -hmm. that if I dive into some of these questions that I have, because if I'm honest, I've never met a woman who's like, I have no questions. (laughs) They have questions. It's just, I need to rely on someone else to help answer those questions, which having other people and having community, that's the biggest thing that seminary gives you that you could also have somewhere else is having other people speak in to you as you're studying scripture. But the biggest thing I tend to say to women is really addressing that fear question that people think if I die, dive in, I'll drown. That's the image I always had about scripture. Like if I just dive into the ocean, (laughs) I will be overcome and I will not be able to breathe. And so I have to kind of find some way to nail down all the details and understand everything. And if I'm not going to be that person, I just shouldn't even do it. And what I have found is that when I jump into the ocean, I can miraculously breathe underwater. That when it kind of overwhelms me, it's still good and beautiful. And the other thing I tell people all the time is, I had this really beautiful experience in seminary, but this experience could happen anywhere of every single time I had a difficult question, like a verse that talks about women in a way that I don't understand, or a verse that talks about violence in the Old Testament in a way that I don't understand. If I spend the time to deep dive into that question, to read what other smarter people have said, to ask the Holy Spirit to guide me, when I really spend concerted effort trying to answer that question, 
I have always found the truth of scripture to be better and more beautiful than I initially thought it would be. And I think now I've kind of slowly over time gained an expectation that when I jump in, it will be beautiful, but you don't gain that expectation by me telling you to have that expectation. You gain that expectation by doing it over and over again. And so the thing I would say to women is you are made in the image of God, just as much as men are. And the commission that's given to you in the beginning of creation to rule and reign, to steward creation, to be God's representatives on earth, that's the same commission for you. And we are going to do that poorly if we're not well-trained in scripture. And you have the freedom, you have all of the same kind of giftings and abilities and you know cognitive abilities and questions to ask. And if there's anything I learned in seminary, it's that the classes where there were mostly men and almost no women suffered because mm. women ask different questions. We have different perspectives. And so it's not even just for you. It's not even yeah. kind of like a, you lose out when you don't study scripture, your church, your family, your community loses out on your perspective when you're not studying scripture faithfully. I love it so much. I am a mom, but this is not just applied to moms by any means. But I remember my particular scenario when I started really believing the truths of everything you just said. Mm. I'm like, yes, I can. I remember feeling, wow, I feel even more equipped now as a mom mm. who I'm yeah. you know, discipling four children within my home you know, for 18 years. And I thought, wow, God, you have given me this word to help me. And now I get to be a steward mm. of it. So it was even great for me as a mom. And I know that's not everyone's story, but it was my particular story. Yeah. Okay, Caitlin, you wrote a book. And it released last year in a whirlwind of year with politics <laughs> in the United States of America. Yes. <laughs> the Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor. And uh, we have a mutual friend, Kat Armstrong, who has yes. been on the show. And I'm a super big fan of her. And she told me about you. I think I must have posted something about the Holy Post, which is a podcast that <laughs> I listen to every week. I'm a faithful listener. And you're on that show sometimes. And I love it yeah. when you're there. And she's like, oh, I know her. You should have her on the happy hour. And so here we are. And I'm so excited <laughs> about that. But the liturgy of politics. I haven't heard anything that you've told me so far that would have made me go, oh, I bet Caitlin would write a book on politics. And so (laughs) first you need to tell me where this even came about in your own personal life. Yeah. So before I made a decision at the end of college to go to seminary, I thought I was going to go to law school and I cared a lot about politics. I cared about legal questions and I really kind of did not expect the seminary turn. And when I went to seminary, I started in 2016, I kind of thought I'm leaving all that stuff behind me. You know, I was interested in that stuff, but to be honest, I thought a really false thing, which is that that's sort of lowly earthly stuff. And I'm going to go do the high spiritual stuff. Got it. Got <laughs> which is it. Not true at all. Um, and I had to kind of be humbled about that as I learned that I'm not a better person <laughs> because I'm doing this kind of work. Yeah. But I really, starting in 2016, you know, that was a rough election for a lot of young evangelicals, figuring out what they believe, kind of untangling as they've grown up, like all people do, what their parents believed, what they believe, trying to kind of figure out what's right. And I was in this unique space of a ton of people training for ministry who were in our classes, learning all these things about spiritual formation, learning about how everything we do in our lives, the habits, the practices, you know, the fact that I brush my teeth every morning, the grocery store I go to, all of these things spiritually form me, not just, you know, my body, but also my heart and my mind. And then in coffee shops on campus, we were talking about the election and people were worried about what the election was doing to their people. They were seeing them not just have political opinions they disagreed with, 
but they were seeing their political participation shape them in ways that was counter to the gospel. They weren't loving their neighbor the way they should. They weren't believing true things about God and humans and communities. And those conversations were totally separate. There was the Mm. spiritual formation conversation, and there was the, what are we going to do about the political state of the world conversation? And I, in the middle of that, was just sitting there thinking, these need to be connected conversations. And so I had the gift of, again, the beauty of seminary, being around all these really smart people and getting to do research about this thing I cared about. Um, And now I want to keep researching that kind of stuff forever. But it really was an opportunity for me to say, I think people who are discipling their children, people who are discipling people in their church, Bible study leaders, pastors, everyday people in a church need some resources for thinking about how not just to vote or how to think about legislation or how to think about leaders, but how to think about what it means to be a Christian in the world for the sake of our community. That's such so needed. And you mentioned something earlier about how people were kind of having this idea of feeling a little whiplash, especially young yeah. people in 2016. And in fact, you said about a partnership between the church and the Republican Party. And you said this partnership moved from a strategic alliance, we'll support your favorite policies, support ours, to a single coherence, Christian equaled Republican. And you talk about this idol, the idol of politics that had become, and you quote, you quote Andy Crouch in here, and you said, uh, the idol demanded more and more of us until we abdicated our true identities for a false one. And I had a friend, she is in her 20s, tell me that this was hard for her because because she all of a sudden saw what her parents had said in the 90s with politics about how morality was so important. And then we went to 2016 and all of a sudden there was no morality anymore. Is that something that you saw young people grappling with a lot in the 2016 election? Yeah, and I think even broader than that, a lot of people looked at young people's shifting political views, young Christians shifting political views and said, oh, they've gone liberal (laughs) or they're they're capitulating to the culture. And that could be true of some people. I don't wanna make a general statement, but the people that I knew were reading their Bibles and they were frustrated that again, that what that thing that started out strategic, right? We'll support these policies, we'll help you, turned into we have to support everything you say and do. And to be a Christian means to be a Republican. And with that would be true of any party, that to say that would mean we would have to give up some pretty important things about our faith. And so they were reading the prophets, how the prophets talk about caring for the oppressed and the vulnerable. They were reading how Jesus cared for people's material needs, the way James talks about wealth and poverty. And they were frustrated that it felt like not only had their parents' political alignment discarded some of those things, but they felt like it wasn't just contained to politics. And that was a lot of my concern was not just, well, your politics don't reflect all these things. Every time you vote, it can't reflect everything you believe every single time. And yet we were acting like we could vote one way consistently. We could consume the same cable news. We could participate the same way every year. And it wouldn't affect the way we treated our neighbor, the way we felt in our hearts, the theology that we had. And yet that was true, that it wasn't just how we voted. It was how we thought about the humanity of the poor among us, how we thought about God's heart for justice, how we thought about our responsibility in the world. And so I think a lot of young people felt like, you told me to read the Bible. You told me to take it literally. I'm trying to do that. And yet you're acting like I've kind of gone by the wayside. I'm capitulating to the culture. And we all can kind of make mistakes one way or the other. We have to find ways to balance. And I think the good of different generations could be correcting each other in different ways. But what I was seeing was young people saying, over time, because of these historical reasons that I talk about in the book, we have no longer had our political engagement truly be shaped by the whole scriptural witness. We have cherry-picked verses, and we have found ways to make ourselves comfortable in positions of power that maybe we were never meant to be comfortable in, and we've lost a bit of our prophetic witness. And I think there's a lot of young people that are hungry for people to help them figure out how to do that. I agree with you. 
You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. I love the way you unpack that in here. Now, one thing that I think a lot of people can fear, and you talk about this in the book, so I'd love to hear you talk more about it here, is there's this idea of like, I'm not going to be political here. And, you know, Caitlin, I found myself feeling like I had to say that sometimes. Like when I talk about how we should care for migrant children at the border, I live in Texas. And so that's an issue here for me more than maybe someone in New Hampshire, but I live here. And so I talk about that. I find myself often having to go, guys, this isn't political. I'm just saying we should love our neighbor. What is that? How did we get there? Has it always been that way? How can the church engage and not have to say that? Or do we just need to say, this is political and here's why? Yeah, I think part of the reason we've got there is that we've done such a bad job (laughs) engaging politically that it feels like that realm is just so tainted that it must just be an icky mess. And so for me to say something about migrant children, for me to say something about how we treat the poor, I have to preface that because people's walls will come up. Oh, you're doing something political? We're going to fight. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's really sad because the word political at its root, polis, just means city, means how we live together in community. And so I want Christians, especially pastors, ministry leaders to ward off against partisanship to kind of selling themselves to one party or the other and having that be their entire identity. And yet for us to say, we're not being political is to deny the fact that loving our neighbor requires addressing structural barriers to their flourishing. I can't say that I love my neighbor next door to me where there are laws that are hurting them and their families that are keeping them in poverty, that are, you know, doing negative things to their community and say, Oh, I love you, but those political issues are too much for me. So I'm not going to get involved. You know, it requires our involvement, but part of the heart of the book was to say the people who are worried about being political have a good concern 
being involved in the political process is dangerous. It causes us to believe false things about our neighbors and ourselves and God because no one is ever just telling us how to vote. They're Mm. telling us a broader story about the good life, about what's wrong with the world, about who we are as people. And it's really easy to buy into that whole story when we vote for someone. And so the people who are concerned about getting political have a very good concern. The problem is it usually is a pretty privileged position that is not impacted by politics. So I can choose to be uninvolved because those policies don't affect me. But if I'm going to really truly love my neighbor, I have to figure out a healthy way to be involved in the political process without it forming me in a way that is bad. So good. And it is, there is so much privilege involved in that as well. You know, I was thinking about how do churches overcome this and how do Mm. we actually disciple our people in a good way you know, theology and knowing so that we don't have to separate those things. Because what I'm hearing you saying is that what we've been noticing is that people have been able to separate what they believe about the Bible and then what they believe in politics. Is that what you're saying? And so they had this division. And so how do we kind of go there? I can't remember which podcast I was listening to. I think it was the Holy Post with Jesus and John Wayne series Mm. that they're doing. And I believe that they were quoting a study that said that they did a survey of pastors and then of their congregants. And pastors were believing and saying one thing, but their congregants were not at all. And what they were saying by that study was that the congregants were getting most of their quote unquote discipleship around politics from the world, not from their church. And how we've seen a change over that in the last couple of decades, because people are attending church less and all those kind of things. And so it feels very difficult to think that the church can have a handle on how to help people see politics. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's the way you've just described it is so accurate. And I think it's not just that people are attending church less and that, you know, there's kind of dynamics when it comes to normal life in America. Part of it is a fear on the part of people who are discipling us. And it kind of just, there's that line that gets drawn, right? I care about your inner spiritual condition and the way that you live your life out in the world is kind of another story. And so we've outsourced political discipleship to cable news, to political pundits, and it's destructive to people in our churches. And I have a lot of compassion for pastors and leaders who are afraid of getting into those issues. I just spent all this time in a seminary with a lot of people who are freaked out about what to do. And my heart really is just to say, you are missing this incredible opportunity to shape the people in your congregations. And it's a little bit like spiritual malpractice to let them be more formed by those things in the world than by our habits and practices in the church. It's so good. Okay. The thing is that I wish that we could do a series because I have 17 things that I want to chat with you about today. <laughs> I'm trying to pick where I want to go next. And I think I want to talk about chapter three of your book and it's called Of This World. And it's the Gospels of Prosperity, patriotism, security, and supremacy. And I was listening to your book as I was doing something this weekend. And I was really struck by the way that you had these different gospels that can make us feel so uncomfortable when we see ourselves in them. Um, And so can you walk us through those a little bit and see how the church has landed on some of those? So in this chapter, I tried to, I use the language of political gospels, because like I said earlier, I'm trying to get us to realize it's not just a party platform you're agreeing with. It's not just a vote for a politician. When you see an ad, when you hear a politician speak, they are telling you a broader story and it falls, you know, these are just four that I have chosen that I think are particularly powerful right now. And that have particularly harmed, especially white evangelical churches in the U S. So the prosperity gospel, I think a lot of us would hear that and be like, oh, that's not my church. (laughs) You know, I don't have a pastor 
doctor that has a jet. I'm not worried about kind of the give your seed money so that I can, you know, we know what prosperity gospel is and that's not us. And yet a lot of us do have this sense that if I work hard, if I eat well, if I have, you know, get married and have two and a half kids in the picket fence, I deserve a good life. And either God gives me that or the free market gives me that, but I am owed that. And so if you are impoverished, you've made bad choices. If you're incredibly wealthy, you must be morally superior. And we don't believe all of those tenants quite as strongly as I just said them, but they seep into the way that we think. We see videos on YouTube of rags to riches stories and we go, yes, that's the world working the way it's supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And all of these gospels work that way. We consume them through media and through politicians and through the ways of the world. The security gospel. On that one, I recently had a conversation with someone and they said, we live in America. Everyone has the same opportunity. Everyone can succeed. And I was just like, well, I have my head wrapped around that enough to know that that's not true, but that's what that is. This idea of like, if you just work hard enough, you can do anything. But we know that's a very privileged statement to say as well. So carry on with the next one. Yeah. The security gospel very similarly says, if I do all of the right things, if I make the right choices, I will be safe. And the example that I think I give in the book that I think helps illustrate this, I was listening to a podcast. It was one of those like creepy crime ones Uh that I hate that I listen (laughs) to, but I can't stop. Yes. And it was a true story of this girl who was at a bar. And because of a series of things that were not her fault, she ended up not only being assaulted, but arrested, unfairly arrested. And I was listening to this and I was so terrified because this is a terrifying story to think that you could do nothing wrong Mm -hmm. and be not only assaulted, but arrested unfairly in this bar. And so the way I could make myself feel better was by saying, well, I would never make the choices she made. I would never go to that bar. I would never talk to that person. I would never accidentally hit a police officer. You know, all these things that I don't actually fully have control over. But not only did it kind of implicitly end up saying that it was her fault what happened to her, which is not true, but it made me feel better to say, I'm the kind of person that makes the right choices. And so I deserve to be kept safe. Mm. And not only is safety not the mission that Jesus has called us to, but that kind of idolizing of security causes us to put multiple gates around our houses It causes us to justify things like police brutality or really harsh immigration policies because it's us versus them and we have to keep ourselves safe. And it's, again, really insidious because it starts in that small little way where we say, I have to build this wall around me. And then it ends up in these really horrible political decisions that we will support. Mm. And then we see in the Gospels, Jesus is completely telling us a different story of how things are going to go. Yeah. Yes. And a, a sacrificial story. That's one thread throughout all of these Gospels is it's not about you. It's about you sacrificing on behalf of the vulnerable and the people that that really Jesus came to continually remind us we are supposed to be serving. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the prosperity, security, the patriotic gospel, which can kind of ruffle some feathers. I am a military kid, so I understand feeling really a lot of pride for my country. And yet becoming a Jesus follower has helped me to understand how that needs to be demoted. Um, I love Andy Crouch talks about how he doesn't feel proud of his country, but he feels thankful. And he feels thankful not only for, you know, founding fathers and kind of the typical things we associate with America, but he feels thankful for civil rights activists who are also part of the story of America. So we can be thankful for our country, but the patriotic gospel says that our country is the ultimate good and that the threat in the world are people who are not like us. And so we have to not only defend our country above all else, but we have to have a sense that our country is our primary identity and community. When as Christ followers, our primary identity and community is identity in Christ and community being the global and historic church. All day long, (laughs) all day long. Okay, then the last one, the gospel of white supremacy. 
Yes. The gospel of white supremacy. So another one that might make people uncomfortable. And yet it's really important because this is, I think the best example of the four of a gospel that is insidious and kind of seeps into our churches. And yet we would never put it in our doctrinal statement. Right. We would never put in our doctrinal statement. America is the best security is ultimate, you know, financial prosperity is important. And also white people are better than everyone else. We would never say that. Right. And yet part of the heart of this book for me was to say those political stories seep in, in small ways. And some of those ways come from the fact that most of us, especially white Americans, statistically more than anyone else grew up in neighborhoods where we had very little or no contact with anyone who wasn't like us racially or ethnically. And so, of course, when the only exposure you have to people who are different from you is through media, it's going to rely on stereotypes. It's going to be one-dimensional. And that extends to our churches. You know, I came from a church in Dallas where we had to really grapple with the fact that, yes, we were in a really white neighborhood, but that wasn't for no reason. That was because the city of Dallas has a long history of segregation. And that impacts where I go to school, where I go to church, where I grocery shop. And so for me to be kind of subconsciously formed by those patterns of life without investigating them and without seeing how we as the church can be intentionally counter to those ways of forming us is a real mistake. And it's a denial of the truth of the gospel that we have been created. I love Ephesians 2 when it talks about the dividing wall of hostility being broken down between Jew and Gentile. Those kind of you know racial elements weren't there for them. Race wasn't kind of constructed until later. And yet That would have been revolutionary to them to understand that Jesus already did the work for us to be reconciled together. And if our churches look around and see segregation that we don't do anything about, we're not really witnessing to the truth of the gospel in our communities. So good. You talk in your book also about developing a good posture of listening and learning and the story to live into. This is chapter five that I'm talking about, about the spiritual and political formation. And a lot of what you talked about here came from you seeing things that like you hadn't seen before until you started studying scripture in a new light. And so can you talk about the importance of that and those different postures, the practices for good posture? And I have them here if you don't have your book in front of you, about how that changes the way we as Christians, how we act politically as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about community. Um, I don't remember who said this. I've tried to Google and find it and I can't, but someone once said something about if you stuck someone in a closet with a Bible, shut the door, left them for a year and came back, they would come out a heretic (laughs) because you alone in your little closet, you could hopefully find the very general story of redemption in scripture. You could believe the gospel and yet Christians throughout history have always had Bible verses to back up bad theology, whether it's really early heresies about the Trinity and about Christ, whether that's people who use scripture to justify segregation or slavery. We have always found ways to twist scripture. And we've often done it when we're not in community with people who are different from us. Mm. And so part of the heart of that chapter was to say, when we read scripture, not only do we have to be in community with people who are different from us, and even if you live in an area that's not very diverse, we have such an abundance of resources today that we have never had before to really sharpen our perspective, to challenge us. Um, But we also have to have a posture. And this is something that was really revolutionary for me, a posture of seeing myself as the bad guy in the Bible. Too often I go in and I read passages that talk about Jesus caring for the oppressed or God fighting for people. And I put myself in the position of the person that needs to be rescued. And I, on a fundamental spiritual level, did need to be rescued. And yet throughout all of scripture, it's the people of God that get the harshest words for how they treat others. One of my favorite examples of this that really kind of, I go back to this story when I'm thinking about how I want to read scripture 
is in Luke four, when Jesus is starting off his ministry and he's quoting from Isaiah and saying, I'm here to free the captive and give sight to the blind. And it says that the people in his hometown were cheering and they were so excited for him. And then he reminds them of two times when two prophets in the history of Israel went outside of Israel and cared for Gentiles, people who were not part of the people of God. And as soon as he reminds them of that, they try and throw him off a cliff. So it's a picture to me of when God is sharing liberating message, Mm. this redemptive message that scripture shows us that Jesus came to reveal that he died on the cross for, it is really easy to solely see ourselves as the recipients of that liberation and not as people who might actually be preventing the liberation of other people. And so it's helpful for me anytime I'm reading something in scripture to to kind of ask questions about like, where am I placing myself? Mm. Am I limiting where this piece of scripture can challenge me? Am I saying this only challenges my heart and not my action in the world? Um, and is there a way that someone from a different perspective might read this differently than me? And do I need to seek out some other ways of thinking about this? That's so good. And you have a book in here that you talked about. It's called Fast Day Sermons or the Pulpit Mm. on the State of the Country. And it was these 10 sermons from nationally prominent church leaders published in 1861. Some of them were defending or some of them were condemning abolitionists. And so when you read that, it's where you saw them taking the same exact scripture, or maybe not the yeah. same exact, you can expand on that, but taking scripture to back up something that we now today would read that and go, that's ludicrous. And where would that even yeah. come from? And so how do we as Christians, how do we, like, I know that these good postures are like being in community and reading mm-hmm. the whole story and submitting to moral authority and, you know, all of those things. But then you hear of someone taking, today people will take scripture to defend yeah. things that we know cannot be true. How do we as Christians lean into that and fight against that. One of the really kind of startling things about that book is that the pastors and those sermons that they chose for that book have very similar views of scripture. Like no one in that book is like not taking scripture seriously or, you know, so it's showing that a lot of times evangelicals, we can kind of say, well, the primary thing is having a high view of scripture and then everything else will just sort of flow after that. And that's really heartbreakingly not true. I hope we have a high view of scripture and yet we can still really make mistakes. And that's why really the whole second half of the book, my heart was to say, we can't just think that if we know the right things and if we've read the right verses, we will act well in the political world. Mm. We need to also think about the context we're in, the community that we're in and the habits and practices that are shaping us. So I think about those people who wrote sermons that used scripture in really horrible ways to justify really wrong things. We're certainly not in a community that would call them out by people who are different from them, but they also probably weren't practicing the kind of historic practices of the church in the way that we've seen throughout history. Those have formed people correctly. They've challenged them. And a lot of my desire was to say, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. (laughs) I don't want to look at the political situation that's happening right now and go, we need new tools. Like we need to figure it out. I started writing the book when I was 23, I think. (laughs) I don't want to be the young person that's like, I have it figured out, you know? So when I see things like these pastors who use scripture very differently, I don't want to come and say, I know how to fix this, Mm -hmm. you know? But I did want to say, we are not the first little subset of the people of God to deal with political idolatry by far. Mm -hmm. And so can we look at the practices of the church, things like correctly practicing the Eucharist, baptism, spiritual disciplines, are there resources that evangelicals in America for the most part have kind of underplayed? Mm -hmm. We haven't taken those things as powerful or serious as we often should take them. And so could we look back in history and say, is there something inherently about baptism, about communion, about spiritual disciplines 
that should form us into the kind of people who can engage in the world well. And that will be combined with our study of scripture. But if I've been in a community where someone is baptized into my community and I recognize that their needs now become my needs, that will change how I read scripture. I don't know that I could give a list of correct ways of reading. I'm a nerd, so I could always try, (laughs) but probably more powerful than that would be being part of a community accurately practicing the sacraments, practicing spiritual disciplines, and having those things that form our hearts and not just our minds shape how we read scripture and how we approach it. Okay. So what I hear you saying, if I'm right, yeah, is that a departure from some very foundational spiritual discipline and formations in our lives yeah. has led us to a place where we are so scared to be political because there's a separation between our faith and politics. And you're encouraging us that if we would really believe God's word and what he wants for us with community and being a part of the church and seeing our brothers and sisters as their needs matter as much as mine, it would change the way we engaged in politics. Did I sum it up correctly? Yes. And I want to be totally clear. Like if the word political is super uncomfortable for someone, take it out, like get rid of the word for a minute and just think if I was practicing things like hospitality, if I was practicing things like fasting from things, uh, material goods that I have in order to give them to other people, if I was part of a diverse community and people were baptized into it and I saw their needs as my needs, would that change how I voted? Yeah. But would it also probably change just how I treat my neighbor, how I think about my community? Hopefully, yes. And so the goal of the book is not just to say, let's think about politics differently. It's to say, if we really were practicing the practices of the people of God, we would interact in the world in a healthier, more faithful way. Is that your goal for people as they finish reading this book? Yeah, I really, there are some discussion questions on IVP's website. And honestly, my goal would be just like scripture, that you read this in community and that you have a really practical sense of what's a spiritual discipline I could adopt or what's a change. If you're a leader of a church, how could I change something in our corporate worship that makes our practicing of our faith less individual, more corporate, more oriented towards the flourishing of our communities? And that doesn't have to be, I'm not trying to change the world. (laughs) Sometimes our goals are way too big, but could I just pick one thing that could make me a more faithful person in the world for the sake of my neighbor? Caitlin. I love it so much. I love that you stepped out and did this. And I'm not going to lie, seeing the word politics on the cover of a book can be scary for some people. Sure. And so did you have any pushback of putting the word politics on the book? Yeah. I mean, when people hear that I wrote a book that uses the word liturgy and the word politics, you're like, what is this? (laughs) So pump the brakes, read my definitions. That will probably help you. But honestly, I do think for people in my generation, that word was helpful because it was like, I am hungry for a better way forward. That's so good. That's so good. Well, the Liturgy of Politics, Spiritual Formation for the Sake of Our Neighbor came out last August. You can get it anywhere books are sold. I highly recommend it. I um, ate it up and loved it. Uh, Caitlin, I'd love to hear from you. What are you loving and what are you reading these days? I just finished reading The Word of God for the People of God by J. Todd Billings, which if you, some of that discussion about scripture, maybe that's like kind of scary, but you're interested in it. That book is a great introduction to thinking differently. Like just thinking maybe the way I was taught to read scripture isn't a hundred percent correct. Maybe I should be reading in community more. Maybe I should think more about practices. I'm also watching the West Wing again for the first time in a couple of years. And if you're also sick of politics, watch the West (laughs) Wing and you'll be like excited again about it. (laughs) You know, what's so funny is I've never seen it, but my husband husband watched the whole thing. And I've heard so many people say that that is one show that has stood the test of time. Like you could still watch it now and love it. Whereas there's some shows you're like, 
I love that then. I've seen it again and I'm going to pass. But I've heard the West Wing can stand up for the test of time. So that's fun. Yeah. It's a good picture, I think, of if you're tired of politics, it really, there is a hope and a life in there that is just exciting to think, yeah, in my little corner of the world, even if I'm not in the White House, I could do something that actually helps my neighbors. I love that. Okay. You mentioned earlier that you got into a program you didn't know you'd be able to get into. What will you know more of in the next couple of years? Yeah, so I'm doing my doctorate in political theology, which again, sounds scary. But it does really, sound scary, Caitlin. It, <laughs> I know. It just means theological reflection on how we live together, not just mm-hmm. kind of what laws are good or how to think about engaging in politics, but more broadly, what does it mean for Christians to live in a world that is our home ultimately, but we have tension with? And what does it mean for the church to have authority, for the government to have authority? How do we think about passages like Romans 13 that we've kind of fought about a lot? And so I'm just excited. I'm mostly excited to think about how in communities we could read scripture and practice the historic practices of the church in a way that makes us more faithful witnesses, which if it sounds like I just repeated the heart of the book, I did. (laughs) I'm just not done thinking about that. And I'm really hoping to, hoping to continue to have things from my own study that I can use to hopefully just give resources to people who are trying to do that in their churches. I love that so much. Are you working on any other new book project right now? Or are you just straight school? I thought straight school. (laughs) Oh, I told people for the last six months that I would write a dissertation before I wrote another book, but there is an idea that is a little bit more focused on scripture than the first book that has really taken a hold of my heart. And so we'll see if I do the same thing I did before where I'm in school and writing and, (laughs) you know, doing something that seems ridiculous to a lot of people, but is really what I love doing. I love it so much. Well, Caitlin, thanks for coming on the happy hour. It has been a joy. I really appreciated your book and the way you consistently pointed us back to something way bigger than politics, which was Mm -hmm. the family of God and how we have not even just an obligation, but, and not even just a duty, but we have the opportunity to love our neighbor really well and how we can do that in our country in the midst of sometimes it feels a little bit crazy with politics. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jamie. You guys, I told you that you would love it. Go over to YouTube and watch the video at youtube.com slash Jamie Ivy. I asked Caitlin about the four gospels that she walks through in her book, the gospels of prosperity, patriotism, security, and supremacy. And it's interesting how we can see ourselves in those and how damaging they can be to the actual gospel and to our churches. You guys, I hope you were encouraged by this conversation today. If you want to hear more from Caitlin, go get her book, The Liturgy of Politics. I promise you're going to love it. In fact, I listened to it on Audible and she has a voice that I can listen to forever. And so if you liked her voice today, I encourage you to go get on Audible and listen to it. Thanks so much for listening to the Happy Hour Jamie Ivy podcast. We are truly grateful for every single story that we get to share with you, every encouragement we get to bring to you, and every opportunity we get to point us all to Jesus. If you're loving this show, we would appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, tell your friends. That is actually the number one way that people find out about our show because you tell them. Join us right here every Wednesday and Friday for meaningful conversations that make us think, make us laugh, and point us to Jesus. Also, come find me on other places around the internet as well. I love Instagram. I'm at Jamie Ivy, And we've been having some fun posting videos on YouTube as well. Sometimes you wish you could see the person I'm interviewing. Well, come over and find us there and you can. JamieIvy.com slash YouTube. 
The Happy Hour is produced by Lindsay Sweeney. Show notes are written by Abigail Castell. Graphics by Rachel Ray. The show is edited by the team at Podshaper. And I'm your host, Jamie. And I love every single week that I get to be here with you guys. Until next time, have a happy hour with a friend. Thank you.